So, uh, uh, hi, it's Graham here. Sorry to interrupt your podcast listening like this, but uh, I wondered if you could do us a little favour. I haven't told Carol I'm going to do this, and frankly, I'm not sure she's going to find out. Let's maybe keep it that way, shall we? Uh, I don't think she listens to the podcast, so she won't hear that I've tacked this on to the beginning. But the European Security Blogger Awards, they're about to happen, and Smashing Security has been nominated in a couple of categories. Huzzah, huzzah! You can vote in the awards for your favourite security blogs and security podcasts, hint, hint, but you've only got a few days before the voting closes. So do it today. Do it now. Hit pause. Oh, not before I've told you the URL. It's smashingsecurity.com slash vote. That will redirect you through magic to the voting form. And, well, hey, made the best podcast co-hosted for the last six or so years by a Brit and a Canadian win. Um, yeah, over to you. Smashingsecurity.com slash vote. Thank you very much. We love you all, uh, at least the people who vote for us. Uh, but for now, back to your normal service. And uh, sorry about this interruption. They couldn't believe their luck because they thought $50,000. Brilliant. <laughs> nothing, that's nothing. That's probably in the bottom of my shoe somewhere. Hold on. Yes, it is. <laughs> There's probably someone snorting that in the corporate bathroom <laughs> right now. Smashing Security, episode 274, Hands Off My Biometrics, and a Wormhole Squirmish, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 274. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And Carol, this time on the show, we are joined by... No one again. Oh, for goodness sake. But it's not my fault this week. And it's not my fault either. It's the stupid guest's fault. <laughs> well, no, it's his employer. Yes. Who's unfortunately dumped a whole load of work on them at the last moment. <laughs> mm. We will get them on at some point. One day. We were on our own, but we have a lot of content, so it'll be fine. Cool. Don't you think? Of course it will. Of course it will. It's going to be marvellous. Of course it will. It'd probably be better, actually. Probably. Now, why don't we thank this week's sponsors, Collide, Rumble, and Good Access. It's their support that help us give you this show for free. Now, coming up on today's show, Graham, what do you got? I'm going to be master of my own domain. <laughs> okay. And I'm just going to ask, how legal is the whole face printing thing? Plus, a fabulous featured interview with Arthur Kane from Good Access, who's going to explain anytime, anywhere, secure remote access. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chum chum, remember Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan, remind me. Astronomer, cosmologist, owner, I imagine, of a tweed jacket. You remember him? He had a kind of, oh, I can't do a Carl Sagan impression. Did he set a record into space? He's put everything into space. He's no longer alive. Right, yeah, yeah. He sort of made space popular. Before him, space Hardly anyone noticed it. Okay, I may be wrong, but I seem to think that he's involved or created an album to communicate with aliens, and it was being played in space. He, he might, he might that, have done. It may have been something completely different. A listener will correct me on Twitter. He was an extraordinary American author and science communicator that everyone apart from you looked up to and admired. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm maybe too young. I suspect well, people my age and younger probably... 
Don't know him. Well, anyway, he had fans around the world, um, including computer engineer Dick Merriman. And Dick Merriman, back in 1994, was watching Carl Sagan's famous TV show, which is called Cosmos, mm. with his wife, Linda. That's Dick's wife, Linda, not Carl Sagan's wife. <laughs> and uh, now, Carl Sagan, he wrote the, the book Contact in the mid-1980s. Is that the one with um, Jodie Foster? I've never seen it. The movie, not the book. Well, he wrote the book. Oh, right, right, and right. it was then turned yeah, into Yeah, I a never movie. read the yes. book, but yeah, there was a movie with Steve Gutenberg. Oh, okay. What, from Police Academy? I think it's, again. <laughs> you sure? No. <laughs> really? It's just a podcast. Thank God it's not a test. Go on. Okay. People can look it up for themselves. Don't trust me. Well, when Sagan wrote this book, he needed a way to transport Jodie Foster, who was playing the hero of the story, from Earth to a star which was eight light years away, which obviously is an astronomically long distance. Mm -hmm. And what he used was the concept of a tunnel or a wormhole connecting right. distant locations yes. in space and time. Quite fascinating thing if you're into all that um, Einstein kind of uh, gubbins. Anyway. Gubbins. This idea of wormholes blew the mind of our hero of this particular story, Dick Merriman, who was watching this back in 1994. And he turned to his wife. He says, I love the idea of a wormhole. I'm going to make me one. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. He said, we're going to get a wormhole. Now, he wasn't able to make one in his backyard, unfortunately. It's not that easy. Right. So he did the next best thing. And he did what no one had ever done on the internet before, which is he bought the internet domain wormhole.com. He owned wormhole.com. And that was back in 1994. The website wormhole.com continues to exist to this day. <laughs> he didn't have any use for wormhole.com as a website. So he just put an image of a wormhole, a sort of cosmic image, on its single page. And it, there's a one-line description of what a wormhole is. And he owns a wormhole. And he owns the wormhole on the internet. Mm -hmm. But what he was able to do, of course, is owning the domain meant that he could set up his own wormhole.com email address that he and his wife have used ever since. Okay. And Dick Merriman, he's now 79 years old, because it's a long time ago when he did this. He's right. still using that email address, dicko at wormhole.com. <laughs> Fabulous. Please don't be so childish. And he was probably feeling pretty pleased with himself, because if you purchase a vanity <laughs> domain, if you purchase your own domain for your email, you don't have to go through any of that pain of getting your business cards reprinted or when you switch from Hotmail to Yahoo to Gmail to ProtonMail or, or, or whatever. Yeah, you don't that's have any often of that. the most biggest concern that we all face is getting our business cards changed. You're right. So that is the end of the story. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. It's like a normal story that you tell. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, not the end of a story. Not the end, because there is more. There is more to tell with this story, because 28 years after Dick bought the domain wormhole.com. Okay. There are other people who are rather keen on owning it themselves. Enter an outfit called the Jump Trading Group. Jump Trading Group. Okay. Yes. This is crypto again, isn't it? Is this crypto? Well, Jump do have a toe <sighs> in the world of crypto, yes. 
amongst other things. You're obsessed with crypto. The whole world is crypto. I'm not. Jump says that they are building the next frontier in crypto infrastructure. They are the firm that is a significant player in the decentralized finance space. And one of the things that they run is a crypto platform called... Wormhole. Wormhole. And they want to own wormhole.com. So this is a domain fight. Yeah, this is a domain fight. Now, you might have heard of this wormhole company because earlier this year, it suffered a $320 million blockchain hack. No, that's huge. Yes, it was huge. But it's also, it was unlike just about every other crypto hack because after wormhole got hacked, the people who lost all their money actually got their money back because Jump, the owners of Wormhole, did this extraordinary thing of replacing all the stolen funds because it has quite a lot of money in its back pocket. So it just, it didn't want to upset people. It didn't want them running off. What? Yes. So they just, they just said, oh, there's 320 million. No problem. Let me just get that out of my piggy bank. Exactly. Which is pretty unusual. I think you'd agree. Whoa. Yeah. You replaced all the stolen funds. I mean, it's the way it should be, but you know. Right. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that Jump and Wormhole, the company, have got a few quid. No shit. Well, not maybe not anymore. Well, <laughs> had a few quid. Yeah. But what they don't have is a good domain name because Wormhole, the company, hangs out at wormholenetwork.com. Well, they could have probably done better than that. Like wormhole <laughs> <laughs> Wormhole with the O being a zero, maybe. Something like that. Uh, anyway, Wormhole may be a hot name in the world of crypto, but anyone who visits, of course, wormhole.com sees Dirk Merriman's tribute to Carl Sagan and wormholes. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Wormhole, the company, says, well, w- we are the best of blockchains. That's what you see when you go to their site. And we got a lot of Wonga. Maybe not now, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And a lot of it's gone down the plug hole, right? if not the wormhole. Mm. <laughs> so Wormhole obviously think there's a future in their business. And they really want to own the domain wormhole.com. So I've now set the scene. (laughs) So I've taken 10 minutes. In June 2021, someone at Jump approached Dick Merriman via a third-party domain broker, and they made him an offer for wormhole.com. Okay. Now, considering that they had $320 million burning a hole in their pockets not so very long ago, how much do you think they were prepared to pay for the domain? No idea. I mean, it's a negotiation, right? This is a site that hasn't been touched in decades. Like, what would you offer? Five grand? They offered two and a half thousand dollars. <laughs> Dick Merriman, he got the request. He wasn't impressed. Mm-hmm. He thought, huh, two and a half thousand dollars. So he responded to the intermediary, you know, domain haggling service mm-hmm. and apparently he said the price for wormhole.com is a firm fifty thousand dollars he said that's what he was prepared to accept he said and jump couldn't believe their luck because they thought fifty thousand dollars brilliant <laughs> nothing that's nothing <laughs> that's probably in the bottom of my shoe somewhere hold on yes it is <laughs> yeah there's yep. probably someone snorting that in the corporate bathroom <laughs> right now fantastic so Wormhole, the company, pressed the button to say accept, and the domain broking service marked the deal status as agreement reached, and the process of transferring the domain began. 
from Dick to Wormhole. Uh, uh, oh, no. Oh, oh. It didn't. Because Dick Merriman, who over the course of some days kept receiving messages from the domain broker service, asking him to set up his account and initiate the transfer in exchange for the payment, he began to have second thoughts. Oh. Yeah. And by mid-July, having not responded for quite some time, he said, nope, sorry, changed my mind. This was too easy. I'm either leaving a lot of money on the table or this is a scam. Either way, not for sale. If you want to make a reasonable offer, then you're encouraged to do so. (sighs) Okay. This annoys me, I think. Okay. It annoys me because if you say to someone, what would you like for this? (laughs) And they give you a number. Yeah. And you meet that number. Yeah. Shouldn't that be like, okay, we're all handshake handshakes. But then, I don't know. I mean, I think people have the right to say, I've changed my mind. Shouldn't they? It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I, I totally, everyone should have a cooling off period. I agree, actually. Everyone should have a cooling off period of anything. And let's remember Dick, you know, I'm not saying- But he signed everything and then said nothing for six well, weeks. Yeah, I mean, he's, well, what he did was when he was first offered two and a half thousand, he said, no way, $50,000 or whatever. Then we're talking. And they came back with $50,000. Should he then have had to say, okay? No, because the way they would have tricked him, if they would have gone back and gone, ha ha ha, 50,000, are you crazy? No way. And then he would have gone, okay, what about 40? And then you would have been on the train. They just bit too soon. It's just bad negotiation tactics, really. Anyway, okay, so he's Mm. he's twigged that there's maybe more money there. So So he thinks there's more money there. Right. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to sell it for 50,000. You're either scamming me or I could be asking for a little more. And then in a later email... He upped the price to $100,000 and then allegedly to $200,000. And Jump were getting annoyed because they wanted wormhole.com. So they threatened legal action for breach of contract. Mm -hmm. And they demanded that Dick had to honour the original message saying he would sell for $50,000. Interesting, right? Dick replies to them, good luck with that. He says, it's $100,000 is what I'm after. So there's a bit of back and forth, a bit of haggling. Jump still not happy. They feel they're being messed around. I mean, yeah, they're already three hundred twenty million out of pocket. So I get, well, I, I get well, it, that, right? That 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 hack actually happened later. That hack <laughs> right. happened this year. This this is still mid last year, right? Anyway, Dick Dick isn't happy either because he doesn't want to lose his email address. He imagine the hassle of having to change it after so many years. He actually told the press. He said, "My email address is like family. It's been around so long." I mean, Dick, don't forget, he's 79 years old, and it's just him and his wife living in a town with a petting zoo. There's not much going on there, up against this huge corporation (laughs) and Mm -hmm. who have just filed a lawsuit against him and demanding that he also pays their legal fees for all the damages they say that he's caused and the costs. Mm. So now they're playing just, they're just going, let's just twist the knife. Okay, yeah, no, I don't, I don't like them anymore. I don't right. like Wormhole anymore. Right, right. Now, Dick, according to media reports, he says he's now giving up. He spoke to a lawyer. The lawyer said, oh, I'm not interested in taking on this case. And so Dick has accepted. He has to throw in the towel and accept, whether he likes it or not, the offer of $50,000. He says, I'm tired. I'm not happy, but I'll take it. And he did sign. Well, 
And he didn't complain within a short period, a cooling off period. He doesn't. Well, I don't know if there was a cooling off period. No, but, but there he, would. I mean, you could argue that there should be, right? That would he, have been maybe a legal. He doesn't remember ever signing up for this domain brokering service, which maybe he did do years and years and years ago, just out of curiosity to see what people would offer him. Apparently, Carl Sagan's estate once inquired about the domain as well, and he offered to give it to them for free because he loves Carl Sagan. And then they decided they didn't want it after all. They wanted to use it for a particular project. But some <laughs> people have suggested this domain could have sold for up to half a million dollars if properly negotiated. But it just feels, you know, when he said, oh, you know, oh, I don't accept two and a half thousand, fifty thousand, then we've got a deal. Is that really a contract? Is that really him saying, I will honour this regardless of who comes forward and offers to pay me. Well, I don't think it was like they were on the phone or in person, right? Did he sign his name to something saying yes, an agreement was reached? This would all have been on the internet. Well, then, yeah, if he put on his electronic signature, I don't know. Really, really great story, Graham. Great. I just think you don't like old people. (laughs) Yes, that's, that's my problem. Well, I've noticed some things. I just don't like you occasionally. It's different. Crow, what have you got for us this week? You might remember, Graham, we discussed in the past facial recognition company Clearview AI. Yes. Yeah. For our listeners, this is the software database company of more than 3 billion plus images of faces scraped from websites like uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, that sort of thing. As I recall from past episodes, they had some kind of app, which you could buy at a vast price or had special access to, where you could go to a bar, scan someone's face, you know, from across the room. And it would give you their name and all their social networking and, you know, you'd know lots of information about people. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah. Literally, you can present a, a picture of anybody and presto, it identifies the right person. In fact, the company claims that it's 100% accurate. Although some reporters have witnessed the software misidentify some right. people. Yeah. I mean, can you identify identical twins? You know, Mr. Tom Fat of Clearview AI, can you? Oh, that's a good point. And I once used one of those things where you, you upload your photograph and it, it says, we will find your celebrity twin. So I was interested in that and I, I uploaded <laughs> myself and it told me Henry Kissinger. Oh, so, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I wouldn't want to know what it would give me. Um, anywho, back in 2020, Cashmere hmm. Hill of the New York Times, she published an alarming and damning piece about Clearview AI, how it's, you know, been peddled to police departments with 30-day free trials all over the country, how it was being misused by fat cats to identify pretty young things going about their business. And listeners might remember I got a bit riled, which is why I also covered the story a few weeks later here on Smashing Security. Mm-hmm. And basically the premise is, you know, Clearview is offering access to this database to private companies, wealthy individuals, federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. And the company claimed that through this enormous database, it could instantaneously identify people with unprecedented accuracy, enabling covert and remote surveillance of individuals on a massive scale. So uh, scary much? (laughs) Yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it, really? Terrifying! Yeah. 
So other people thought like us and thought this isn't great, like the ACLU of Illinois and friends. And many of these, uh, the friends representing people who've been face printed by Clearview without their consent. And they did something about this way back in 2020. And we have just had an update. Oh, okay. But first, you just need to know, and I'm sorry, Graham, I know this is going to be hard for you, okay? But mm. I have to talk a little bit about how the law works in the States, okay? Oh, because thank goodness. I, I thought you were going to say we have to talk about Piers Morgan or something. That was no, the first, no, no, that no. That was the no, first don't thought I had. No, no, no. Just, just so people understand. So, you know, we have like an international audience. So basically in the States, some laws are federal and some are state-based, which yes. is why you have things like, um, uh, like jazz cigarettes being available in some states and legal in some states, whereas mm. in other states, you face jail time if you're caught with that on your person. Right, yeah. And like privacy rights for individuals are similar. So some states like California, New York, Texas, Arkansas, Illinois, there's a few, have started introducing stronger legislation to curb tech companies from mishandling, you know, or misusing or abusing personal info. And some states went even further to these privacy bills and put in a biometric privacy law. All right. And Illinois was the first state to establish one, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA. How does – not living in the United States, um, I don't – I mean, I, f I find it hard to get my head around these sort of two levels of laws and things. How does it happen? How does it work out w w with things like data? Because if there are very strict data protection laws in one particular state, or how much they need to keep you private, which aren't being applied in other states, presumably tech companies just have to go by the, the toughest legislation rather than thinking, oh, well, because you live in Alaska, then we can do all kinds of great things with your data. But we, but you know, do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I they, totally see what you mean. And I think it's a complete nightmare. I think right. it is really a complete nightmare because every single state, but you know what I find odd is in the UK, mm. we have this thing called common law, which it just means, you know, there is kind of some laws and some precedent, but we're going to leave it up to the judge to make a decision. Oh, <laughs> you know? right. Okay. Yeah. So, right. You know, it's like, you don't really, know the laws. Anyway, we digress, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but you, uh, so BIPA, BIPA, you would be right to assume that BIPA requires companies to first notify, right, and get a, a written up consent before they collect, capture, or obtain uh, residence biometric identifiers, right? So before they get fingerprints or face prints or iris scans, they need you saying, yeah, no problem with that. Yeah. Um, and there's a few other states that have a loss similar to this, you know, but their own version. Mm -hmm. But Illinois is unique because it provides aggrieved parties with a private right of action. So other states rely on public authorities to bring an enforced action. Ah. But here you can be private, okay? So the ACLU and the <laughs> ACLU of Illinois and a bunch of others get on the bandwagon and make use of the Illinois BIPA to make a stink about Clearview's business practices. Yeah. And they filed a lawsuit on May 28th, 2020, alleging violation of Illinois' residence privacy rights under the Illinois BIPA Act. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And blah, 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 blah two years go by. Sorry, <laughs> and what was that? <laughs> we've just received an update, right? Yeah. So this week, May 9th, a legal settlement was filed stipulating that as part of the settlement – 
in ACLU versus Clearview AI, yes. the company is now permanently banned from making its faceprint database available to most businesses and other private actors. So basically, your typical guy off the street or girl off the street can't just go and say, I'd like an account, please, and then have access to three billion okay. faces. What's very cool about this is they yeah. somehow got it nationwide. So it's not just for Illinois, but right. nationwide, they're going to be banned from doing this permanently. So the police and co, they will be able to access this data still for law enforcement purposes. Is that right? Yes. So so it's the wording is very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, on how they, who is going to have access. So it's like certain businesses, most businesses, but they're not detailing which ones. But we do know that um, uh, Clearview AI certainly boasts that they uh, represent or they have 3,100 US agencies using their software, including FBI and the DOJ. Right. Or the Home Department of Homeland Security. Hmm. So- um, and what's also weird is on their website, they still proudly boast. I mean, I know this just happened yesterday, but the website proudly boasts that Clearview AI search technology is lawful and constitutional, even though it has been determined to be illegal in countries like Canada and Australia. Six months ago, the UK you know, ICO announced that it had found alleged serious breaches of the UK's data protection laws and issued a provisional notice to stop further processing of all personal data of the people of the UK and to delete it. Yes, but if you're American, you probably think there's a lot of things you're allowed to do in Canada and Australia and the UK, which are illegal back in the good old US of A. And they probably can't believe that we allow certain things. I don't, I don't know what, you know, things like stretching owls or something or, you know, uh, Juggle, juggling yogurts. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I know there are some countries that are very, very excited about having this software, right? Yes. But it's kind of cool that some countries are banning it. And um, I don't know. I mean, what's, what's good about this? I can see it identifying bodies that you can identify might be a useful use. That's the only thing I can... Finding family... I've got bits of my body I'd love to identify. I can't work out what they might be. Well, my pick of the week will help with that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Curious. I'll stay tuned. <laughs> Do you know what assets are connected to your network? Most organisations don't. For your security programme to be effective, you need an inventory of all your devices so you can make critical decisions fast. Well, Rumble was made by the creator of Metasploit, which explains why it finds many devices that other solutions miss, including orphaned machines running outdated operating systems. Quickly find systems affected by the latest security news. Just think of Log4j, SolarWinds and Kaspersky. It can even tell you which machines are missing endpoint protection from your local network all the way to the cloud. Sign up for a free trial and build your asset inventory in minutes. Get your trial at rumble.run. That's rumble.run. And thanks to Rumble for supporting the show. So we all know that users these days sometimes have to connect from an unsecured network using any device they have at hand. And companies have no control over the device, applications, clouds, and the infrastructure that connects it all together. This rapid shift in online work created security gaps that bad actors use to the full. 
And most importantly, companies need to emphasize the reduction of risk of a data breach if a user's credentials are stolen. This is why you need to check out Good Access. This is a global company based in the Czech Republic with a proven 10-year track record. They are a bunch of security enthusiasts dedicated to delivering anytime, anywhere secure remote access for small and medium-sized businesses worldwide. And this begins with a free Good Access starter product for unlimited usage by up to 100 employees. Yes, you heard right, 100 employees. Learn more at smashingsecurity.com forward slash good access. And big thank yous to Good Access for sponsoring the show. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. So instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Sign up today by visiting smashingsecurity.com slash collide. That's smashingsecurity.com slash K-O-L-I-D-E. Enter your email when prompted and you will receive a free Collide goodie bag after your trial activates. You can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free, no credit card required. Try it out at smashingsecurity.com slash collide. That's smashingsecurity.com slash K-O-L-I-D-E. And thanks to Collide for supporting the show. And welcome back. Can you join us at our favourite part of the show? The part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses saying like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security-related necessarily. Better not be. Well, this week, my Pick of the Week was um, suggested to me by a loyal listener who goes by Aww. the name of Yogi. Oh. Uh, who we both know, Carol. Y- yes. And is she a loyal listener? I think she's tuned in to my past Picks of the Week and think I need some help. Okay. And... What I've been recommended is a YouTube channel called Owl Kitty. I will put a link in the show notes. Crow, you can check out Owl Kitty right now. Okay. Owl Kitty, real name Lizzie, is a black cat living in Portland, Oregon. And what Owl Kitty's owner does is he has very... <laughs> Adorable. Very cleverly managed to integrate his cat into famous movie sequences, <laughs> presumably using some kind I of green screen. I would watch this film. Like, literally, it's like, a, it's like King Kong of cats. Right. So what are you seeing, Crow? What are you seeing? Um, I'm just watching a parody of Jurassic Park. So literally, it's like you've got this monstrous Jurassic Park-sized cat. I'm going to go look, see if there's another. So, yeah. So <laughs> regular movies, but with this person's cat. And I also saw some behind-the-scenes videos of how they make these because obviously cats do not perform on demand um and it may take quite a few takes and some very clever techniques i love claws <laughs> claws for jaws oh yogi very good you keep them coming graham did a whole year of board games once so <laughs> we need you 
There's a Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, my God. Um, Titanic. All sorts. The Shining. Anyway, lots of fun. Owl Kitty is my pick of the week. Excellent. <laughs> Crow, what's your pick of the week? Oh, Graham. Okay. Yeah. I have to ask you a sensitive question. Okay. Um, it's about your danglers. I pick your <laughs> do you th- do you think about them? Pardon? Do you think about them regularly? Are you talking about a medallion or so? I don't wear a medallion. Is that what you mean no, by no. a dangler? Between your legs, danglers. Oh my um, do you have hopes and dreams for them? Yes, yes. What, I've got, what, what I've are got they? Big plans. I've always had big dreams. I tell you as to what their future might be. Often, often not achieved, but um, <laughs> it would. But like what? <laughs> what? What role do they play? What role do they play? Well, they they have a very important role. I use them every day um, in a variety of ways, mostly. What? Um, are we talking about the same thing? I what don't think ta- so. What are you talking about? <laughs> what What is your problem here? What are you talking about? Put me out of um, my misery. Your ball sack? Oh, for God's sake, Crow. Really? Yes. Well, I well, said I, I was polite with the word. Well, I, 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 what do you mean hopes and dreams for it? it it's you know. Well, exactly. I think it's a very weird thing to say about that as well, right? I'm with you right. on that. What a right. weird question. Well, it turns out some people do. It seems <laughs> that some people perhaps <sighs> wonder if their danglers feel left out of the whole, you know, deep penetration testing activity that might go on north of their location. <laughs> what? That's a bit security related. But is you know, this a, we, is this a sex thing? Is this what you're talking yes, about? Yes. Yes. Well, well, you tell me once you see it. Okay. And and someone decided that, you know, maybe they too could get in on some of that deep penetration testing activity. So let I'm going to introduce you. Let me out. You know, without further ado, <laughs> let me introduce you to yes. what me must be the most fantastical piece of erotic paraphernalia I've ever seen: the baldo, the baldo, the baldo. Okay. Okay. So check the link in the show notes. Let's have a look. So you can and you can describe it to our listeners. The world's first bald dildo. So, how does this work? So. Oh, I'm really confused. So you have a piece of silicone shaped kind of like a torpedo yes. with two circular holes on either side of the shaft so you can smoosh in your orbs. Yes. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be rather painful? Well, yes, it turns out <laughs> that yes, because journalist Eric Ravenscroft road tested this and his findings were less than satisfactory. Let me uh, give you a few quotes here from his road test. Oh, I can see he scored it two out of 10. I wonder why he got two. Yes, yes. two out of 10. This is a, from a wired. <laughs> it's apparently, quote, it was challenging with an uncomfortably large girth. Um, requires lubrication, which impedes the application process because, you know, the things slip out. And very awkward angles. Uh, so, can, can I just... Journalists. 
Get sent a lot of shit. Journalists used to be like Woodward and Bernstein, right? They would investigate Watergate. They would bring down presidents. And the Wired have hired someone to put his cock and balls into a bit of pink silicon, smooshing them in. Okay, I, this is not what I think happened. Uh, what I think happened is he gets to work, dum da dum da dum going through the press releases, dum da dum da dum Baldo, the world's first bald dildo. And he was like, hello, and then asked his editor if he could do it. Wrote a great story that I actually really giggled at. I found it very fun. So if you want to read it, it's in Wired by Erica Ravenscroft and the world's first bald dildo. And that is my pick of the week. He, he calls it a Dadaist interrogation of the very concept of pleasure. <laughs> oh, oh, call me Dada. All right. Um, well, I have questions, none of which I want to ask on the podcast. I have not tested it. So you might want to email no, well, Eric. I, I imagine, Carol, you would find it hard to test, I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness, at the very least, that there are vendors out there who like to sponsor our podcast. I had this Really interesting chat all about VPNs with Archer Kane of Good Access. Check it out. Shall we crack on and see how we do? Let's do this. Okay. So Arthur Kane is a chief marketing officer at Good Access. This is a global company based in the Czech Republic with 10 plus years on the market. And this team at Good Access is made up of 50 security enthusiasts dedicating themselves to delivering anytime, anywhere, secure remote access. Very warm welcome to you, Arthur. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, great to talk to you finally, Carol. How are you today? <laughs> I'm great, thank you. I think you're the first uh, interviewee that's ever asked me that, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, make sure that we're all comfortable in our seats here. <laughs> now, we are going to chat about all things VPNs, but first, maybe we should start with the work landscape and how it's changed from your perspective. Well, it's changed tremendously over the past few years, obviously, since the pandemic kicked in. Most of the workers uh, left the office and, you know, started working from home. And immediately, companies had to respond and, and sort of become more digital than ever and make sure all these workers and consultants can access their systems from remote and at the same time be protected. And if... Uh, the company wasn't ready for that. They had to do quite a lot to, from the day one, uh, be able to uh, operate as usual. Uh, and so what we see a lot is most of these workers and uh, remote consultants, they tend to use whichever device is at their hand. And suddenly companies lost control over the endpoints and devices that workers use to access critical systems, which increases the potential of data loss, data breach and, and other risks. You're totally right, because you've got workers working from home. They're maybe using their own machines. They're tunneling in God knows how into the network. They're plugging in their own IoT devices and plugging into their own home network. So it's kind of a nightmare for the IT guy in charge. And, you know, not all companies have IT guys and girls, right? So sm smaller companies, uh -huh. especially, uh, you know, software developers and marketing consultancy firms, they don't always have IT department to take care of these things. So it's often, you know, business, C-level owner, co-founder who suddenly needs to, you know, 
step into the role of IT guy and, and, and do this stuff. So Exactly. Okay. So you've got these smaller companies with maybe less IT savviness uh, available. What does this whole new landscape mean for privacy and security at the company? Um, I would actually start to explain uh, the VPN landscape, if, if you allow me. Please do. Most of us know VPNs from the ads on YouTube, uh, you know, telling us that we should protect ourselves and anonymize what we do on the internet and evade uh, surveillance. Um, but VPN has been here for decades and bigger companies with their IT departments, with their systems hosted in uh, data centers or uh, more recently clouds, had to find a way how to create a secure tunnel, which is encrypted to access these systems remotely. And VPNs, they surfed this way for, for many years for decades now. The main problem with traditional VPNs, while they establish the point to site secure remote access, they usually tend to give free access to whichever site the user is connecting to. So once they get access to the VPN, to the tunnel, they can go to, to the data center and exploit anything that's in there. So in modern approach to VPNs, and modern approach to how do we secure network traffic, privacy, and data over the public internet, uh, the concept of zero trust emerged. And zero trust essentially means uh, not providing access to everyone everywhere, but do um, a use case or role-based access to whichever specific data and systems they need for their work crucially, and lowering the potential of the uh, business breach, if that makes sense. Right. So you're, what you're saying is, as well, like zero trust means like just do not trust that the network is safe. That's right. And do not trust the user unless they authenticate, unless they provide their identity, unless you provide sufficient rights to do whichever job they need to do necessarily, but not more than that. We can layer the security into, uh, I would say, network, uh, application, data, and users. So on the data side, definitely we need to check changes. We need to lock access to, to the data for post-compromise analysis. Um, uh, we also need to check for malicious code. But then at the same time, when we, we don't have the, the, the pattern or the database of known codes, which antiviruses and IDP, IPS systems, use. We check for anomalies in the traffic and strange patterns that may indicate a potential security breach or an attacker trying to get in. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's, uh, maybe we can pivot here. So imagine I'm a small company, right? And I'm listening to you and I'm going, yeah, I'm not, I'm sure I'm a bit exposed in the stuff I do. You know, what would be my next steps? How would I go about establishing that and making this work? Is it complicated? Do I need an IT guy? How does it work? So, what I suggest to smaller companies is to focus on technologies who, who uh, cover most of their use, use case in a, in a single dashboard. So instead of trying to deploy VPN for remote access and then uh, working on firewall rules to restrict access and then network access control and then securing endpoints, 
what modern VPNs delivered from cloud as a service offer is that you sign in, create your team, you add users in there, they download client applications. With their client applications, they can get access to whichever systems they need based on zero trust principles. They're also protected from online threats, which means they carry their security, whichever they, device they use and wherever they connect from. It shouldn't be that hard. Uh, if it is, uh, it's probably not the two for you. Tell me, how is Good Access making an offer for helping people get started with VPNs? So we believe that, and, and our driving force um, of everything we do is believe that if businesses want to empower their users with secure and we call it anytime, anywhere access to their digital assets, they should be able to do it uh, with no hassle. And in line with that, we recently launched our free version, which is free for up to 100 users, no limitations in terms of bandwidth, speed. There are no ads in there. It's, it's really what we give away to the world for, you know, making us happy and, and, uh, and, you know, making us part of it for, for the last 14 years. So the easiest thing is to go and uh, create an account, uh, get your 100 users in there. You get online threat protection wherever you browse and whichever sites you go to and you get a secured access to your company resources with that. Of course, if you want to go higher and need to control identity-based zero trust uh, access, etc., we have paid plans. Uh, so just make sure to, 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 to check whichever features and use cases are for you. So some people I've heard say, oh, people only use VPNs if they're up to bad stuff, like streaming stuff they shouldn't be streaming and all this. What do you say to that? That they are right. Uh, most of the VPN market uh, is consumer VPNs. And many of those consumers are bad actors who are trying to uh, evade uh, surveillance, who are trying to anonymize their service, who are trying to access applications or services that are otherwise not allowed or operating in their country. And consumers VPNs, they create encrypted connections that, you know, conceal their identity, location and information. They provide this sort of anonymity to individual users and they do use it uh, to bypass content restrictions and uh, etc. This is not the use case for business VPNs. Business VPNs create private connections that complete data privacy and sort of conceal sensitive business data uh, from online threats and unsecured public networks, uh, etc. So what we do is to, is to check whether you are a company before we give you the free product. And then we also check for activities such as abuse. So uh, I do not recommend to use BitTorrents when connected to business VPN. It is a potential security threat to the company operating the VPN. So we help them in the way that we report them such uh, activities. Right. Okay. So this is definitely not for the home market. This is definitely for small and medium-sized businesses and as well as enterprise businesses, depending on what requirements they have. That is very much correct, Carol. And if you're an enterprise mm -hmm. and you're not into paying for a system integrator to do all your IT for you and you want to do it yourselves, you want to spend more time in strategic activities rather than operating standard technologies like VPN or uh, access control, uh, Good Access is definitely the, the right product for you. 
Fantastic. Is there anything else that you want to touch upon? I just want to say that I do really appreciate everything you do uh, here in Smashing Security. Uh, I think uh, you're absolutely the greatest in, you know, spreading the word about what security really means not trying to not trying to necessarily scare everyone with the number of ransomware and breaches etc but giving them practical information in you know their day-to-day operations so so if there's something to 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 leave with i'm gonna not gonna push any more of good access and and just want to appreciate what you do Wow, that's very kind. Now, listeners, as Arthur has told us, he does have this fab giveaway if you are a small business. So please visit smashingsecurity.com forward slash good access. That's smashingsecurity.com forward slash good access. And try the good access VPN for free for up to 100 users, no limitations, no ads, no tracking. Arthur Kane, thank you so much for coming on Smashing Security. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It, uh, likewise, and hopefully we'll talk soon. Fantastic. Oh, that was really interesting. Well done, Crow, And thank you, Arthur, for coming on the show as well. And it just about wraps up the show for this week. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Smash in Security. No G, Twitter will now have a G, and we also have a Smash in Security subreddit. And don't forget to ensure you never miss another episode. Follow Smash in Security in your favourite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And massive shout out to this episode's sponsors, Collide, Good Access, and Rumble, and of course to our wonderful Patreon community. It's thanks to them all that this show is free. For episode show notes, sponsorship information, guest list, and the entire back catalogue of more than 273 episodes, check out smashingsecurity.com. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. my pick of the week. Why, what did I say? Because you had no idea. Were you? Did you really not know what I was talking about? No, I hadn't. I hadn't clicked on it. I, 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 I couldn't understand. So, so the, with the ball dough, you actually put your balls. You shove your testes with, into that hole, and that then goes into your sexual partner uh, as well as your penis. Well, whatever order. No, not your penis. What? Not your penis. Your penis is just lying around. What? what? Yes. What, on your the dining room table? Where, where have you left your penis? <laughs> have you ever had sex? You can't detach your penis. We're not octopuses or something. Or seahorses. Who, 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 what's the animal? Which, I don't, actually, I'm not sure any animal detaches its penis. I'm, no, there is one. There is one. Is there? Yeah. Does it, it have its own is. little outboard motor or something? Off. For getting it just around? breaks it off and goes, I'm bored now. Bye. You can keep it. <laughs> Keep the change. <laughs> Keep the tip. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Let's, let's just stop recording.